Hi everybody, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Today I have with me Mark Newman, MS. I'm so thrilled to be talking to Mark today. Uh, he's an expert in measuring hormones. Uh, and he's particularly good at educating us physicians. In fact, he's uh, he's made himself very available to me time and again over the last number of months as I drill him with questions, and I just appreciate his willingness to uh, dialogue with me on this important topic. Um, Mark has educated thousands of phys physicians on hormone testing best practices, uh, directing the development of over 100 novel lab tests using blood, saliva, and urine testing methods, has uniquely positioned Mark to build a hormone test model that better meets the needs of providers and patients alike. Precision Analytical's Dutch testing model, that's Dried Urine Test for Comprehensive Hormones Testing Model offers providers a uniquely comprehensive hormone profile, particularly for cortisol. It's also specifically built to monitor HRT as well. Uh, Mark, I'm just really excited to have you here today. I think, you know, you're just a you're a really, really solid analytical chemist, and I appreciate your um, you know, your, your, well, your knowledge in the area, but really your attention to detail and your doggedness to get this, uh, this right. You know, hormone testing, I think, is challenging, and, uh, and you're doing, you guys are doing a great job over there at Precision Analytical. So welcome to New Frontiers. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here. I always tell people I'm an inch wide and a mile deep. So I spent pretty much my whole career in you know, measuring really just reproductive and adrenal hormones. So you get outside the scope of that, and I, I know very little, uh, but I've spent a lot of time, you know, in this particular little niche, so. Yeah, I know, and I'm so psyched to pick your brain, and I've appreciated being able to do that with you. And, you know, you're really curious about it, too. I love sharing research with you. And anyway, um, so you've measured in all different specimen, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But first of all, why did you develop Dutch testing. Why did you develop this method? Well, th those two questions kind of go hand in hand as far as different different methods of testing and what we do because, you know, going from, like for me in my career, I started out in a 24-hour urine environment and helped develop that sort of assay. And you see the benefits of it, like, wow, look at all these great metabolites I can measure. Um, and then you say, okay, what am I missing? Like, one, my patients hate me because they right. don't want to do a 24-hour urine. Right, and right. Two, um, like my mother's a good example. Her cortisol is low in the morning yes. and it's high at night. So if you look at her on a 24-hour urine, she's normal. So you say, ah, man, now I got to go do a saliva test, right? So, mm -hmm. and that was my career path as well. Is then I ended up uh, developing tests and directing lab testing at a uh, saliva lab, a really good one. Mm -hmm. And so got to dig in and, and develop tests there and say, okay, what do I like about this? Well, I really like that cortisol pattern. Yes. But now I've given up all those metabolites. And, and so over the years, they start put together, there's some nice research that shows, um, not done by me, but a group that was looking at chronic fatigue, and they, and they showed really identical patterns of the free cortisol pattern when they looked in saliva and when they looked in urine. And uh -huh. so what we pieced together, which came together better than I could have ever hoped, is the ability to use urine testing, we use dried urine just to make it easy. So you're just, you know, saturating filter paper with urine at specific times. Right. So from those times, you can grab your pattern of uh, cortisol um, and just finish a study looking at saliva 
versus this, and the correlation is beautiful. So now mm -hmm. I have your free cortisol pattern, and then the way we do it, we take essentially what I call a weighted average of those four samples, um, taking into account how hydrated you are for each four sample, and we, and we make a composite sample, and the correlation to the 24-hour urine is really strong. So now I have you know, kind of the best of both worlds. I've got all that rich metabolism information along with the cortisol pattern, and so it becomes uniquely comprehensive. You can look at melatonin and estrogen metabolites and all of this, and again, you preserve that cortisol pattern. Um, and then in the nice byproduct, uh, which is why people tend to think we developed it, but it was just sort of the way it worked out, is that it's super easy for the patients, right? right. You just urinate on this filter paper at, you know, dinner time, bedtime, right when you wake up, two hours later, and boom, you're done. Yes. Uh, so it's really easy, but you, you know, really rich information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, bravo. I mean, you, it's, it's really quite amazing what you guys have done, and, and I'm a big fan, and I'm using it now. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I'm, or, you know, a couple of big reasons are, you know, the, uh, clinicians who I greatly respect and admire and have, you know, had the opportunity to dialogue with and I'm friends with uh, over the years, Bethany Hayes and, and Sarah Godfried both um, have mentioned you in particular and, and the test. Um, uh, you know, Bethany being a little bit of a lab geek like me, or, or at least uh, not lab geeks, but geeky, and, you know, wanting to do the drill down and understanding the analytics. I mean, uh, she's mentioned you uh, a number of times over the years to me. And so finally, you know, that's really when I started to reach out to you, to you and, and, and who is this guy and what's he doing? So bravo. I, I really like the test and indeed uh, my patients do too. So given your background, your extensive background in other um, specimen for hormone testing, talk about, talk about the advantages beyond what you've already stated with regard to serum. So with serum testing, um, for me, I'm pretty happy with a progesterone, with an estrogen, and a testosterone and serum, particularly mm -hmm. if you're measuring the binding proteins, right? So I've got yes. a total and a free testosterone, progesterone, estrogen. Like, those are great values. Uh, so our goal is to match that. And I think the serum's, I think, the gold standard for those. The benefit right. of urine is that it's an average of more time. So the ups and downs throughout the day are averaged out. I don't really think that's a huge problem. Um, so I think you're, you're on fairly equal footing there. And then what we're going to add into the picture is the metabolites, of course. Um, so with the androgens, you know, I don't just get DHEA or DHEAS. I'm getting the downstream metabolites. I don't just get testosterone. I'm getting the alpha and the beta metabolites so I can conclude some things about DHT production, which we also measure, yep. uh, from that. Uh, and, the, and so there's a, and I would consider that a significant benefit, um, but I think you can work fine in either medium mm -hmm. for the reproductive hormones. Where there's really the biggest benefit is with cortisol. You know, I can take two women who have the same cortisol, and if I put one of them on birth control, her cortisol is going to go up in serum, but her binding proteins go up too, and her free yes. cortisol and her cortisol sort of status, if you will, it's the same, but the value doubles, right? So that serum total cortisol you know, the literature tells us we really want free cortisol, and that's why everyone hops over to saliva testing, and, and rightfully so, because it's better. It's multiple times throughout the day, which is important, and it's free, not total, which is a twofold benefit, and so we get to do that as well, um, which, is, which is really good. Then what we get to add on top of that, uh, which is probably the most important thing that we do that people don't tend to know about, 
until they know about it, if you will, are the metabolites of cortisol. Right. Um, and that kind of gets the contrast with saliva, maybe more so than serum. But that's what that's the single factor that led me to this test, is I started looking at saliva data, and I started saying, okay, everybody's telling me cortisol equals fat, right? Fatter people, you know, obese people, like people who struggle with weight gain, it's, there's more cortisol. And then when you look in saliva, what I found is the values are actually lower. Uh, not by a lot, but by a little bit. Yeah. They're not higher at all. And then you start digging in the literature and you realize, oh, okay, hold on. Free cortisol is only 1% of the picture. And the literature is very clear. It's either the same. Well, I guess it's not very clear. It's either the same or slightly lower. There's not a positive correlation there. When you look at the metabolites, which you can only measure in urine, mm-hmm. they represent more like 70%, 80% of the total production. And they, they double and triple as you go from very skinny people to morbidly obese people. Like, there's a yeah. huge positive relationship there. So what happens is the cortisol production gets driven up, but the cortisol clearance gets driven up as well, and you miss that entire story in serum. You miss that, in t- then that story in saliva. And with this test, you, you get that information. So as it relates to serum testing, you're getting a little bit more information, which is helpful on the reproductive hormones, and you're, you know, three or four steps really beyond that um, when it comes to the adrenal. So that, I think those would be probably the biggest benefits as it relates to serum. Yeah, and I like that pearl you threw out at the beginning of this dialogue. I think you've just mentioned a bunch of really, really important stuff. But, you know, just the fact that um, oral contraception is going to uh, ramp it up considerably and you're not, you, you won't be able to see that impact in serum that you need to see the free cortisol and the cortisol metabolites. Um, I know we were talking about uh, a patient of mine, an obese patient of mine who did have, you know, relatively flatlined cortisol uh, in saliva and didn't, you know, didn't respond well to um, hydrocortisone, she was too sensitive to it. It was too, it was too stimulating for her. And I suspect she was actually, uh, her metabolites were high. We, she's pending a Dutch test because I want to just look at that a little bit more closely. Um, so you'll see that in patients, uh, who are obese, sort of a flatline salivary cortisol, and then just profoundly elevated turnover. So yeah, not just salivary. So we see the same thing, right? Because we measure the free right, cortisol. Right. And if you, if you focused on that, um, I mean, because just as an example, there are labs who are getting into this whole, like, hey, you can do cortisol in urine, and they're looking at the free cortisol. If, but if that's all you look at, you're going to see that in urine too. And then you look at the metabolites, and I, I call them, the way I describe it to people is, it's like the bucket at the end of the day, right? The free cortisol is still the most important measurement because yes. it tells you what's free, what's bioavailable, and all of that. Um, if you're depressed, your free cortisol will be higher. Your metabolites typically aren't. Like, so in some cases, the free cortisol is really the most important thing. Uh, and so we want that. But, yeah, when you're obese, what happens, and that's, you know, it's a common issue that we deal with all the time, is you see the significance of that as it relates to cortisol only in the metabolites. Uh, and so you right. really need, it's a three-dimensional picture, right, free cortisol over time plus the total production as measured by metabolites. Like, that's really uh, so much more of a comprehensive cortisol story, yes. and that, that was the main reason I developed this test is because I got so frustrated. You know, I walk into a doctor's office, and they'll say, look, we tested their saliva. It's low. Shoot, now we need to go do a urine test to see if they're just peeing out all their cortisol. Well, good grief. It's, it's frustrating. It's expensive, you know, and all of that. And so that's, that was the main driver behind this. 
Right, right. Well, and I think, so in some, OB, so in some individuals, you see that flatlined free cortisol and you haven't looked at metabolism, or, or you may want to treat with, 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 you know, with uh, cortisol replacement, with hydroxycortisone. Um, but I think, like, in this patient, it was compelling to me how sensitive she was. And she's, you know, she, she's, in, she's pending a Dutch test. She's, in, she's a relatively new patient. And I expect to see those high. And that will give me some explanation, I think, as to her sensitivity. And um, I just need to go another route with this particular obese patient. I'm sure in some cases, however, um, hydroxycortisone is, is reasonable. Well, and the, yeah, the, the contrast is the patient who has low free cortisol, mm -hmm. and then you look at the metabolites, and they're also low, and now you've confirmed it. Now you yes, know exactly. they don't make much cortisol. And, and the, the point is those two patients are so different from one another, but they look the same yep. in saliva. They look the same in urine if you're only looking at free cortisol. And, that's, yeah, that's the main story with cortisol is you need to look at both ends of the spectrum before you – you know, you cannot characterize them well with respect to cortisol um, if you're not looking at, at both of those pieces. Right. Yeah, I got it. Lesson, lesson learned. <laughs> uh, <laughs> point taken. And so, yeah, it's, it's complete, it completely changed the way that I will treat her and other patients when I have um, these data available to me. Uh, so obviously my approach is, you know, with that particular individual is more, you know, functional. We're working on obviously, you know, weight loss and balancing her out metabolically in other ways. And, and, and some adjunct um, adrenal support is, is indicated with her. But there's all sorts of gentle interventions, botanicals and so forth, we can use to support her. Um, okay. So I, I think we've covered, we, we talked about the, the, you know, the utility of this particular method with regard to 24-hour urine collection and um, saliva testing. And I think you've put forth a pretty compelling argument on many fronts, not just to the ease of collection. Um, we've talked about obese patients and, um, you know, and, and some differences we might see or, or hormone replacement or oral contraception uh, and some differences. What other clinical situations um, would we think about uh, where you would prefer this test to some of the some of the other uh, tests we use or uh, standard serum? Yeah, I think um, a couple examples where I really find um, lots of testing useful. It's just in terms of the number of things that we test. Is one would be if you've got a, a thyroid issue. So, mm -hmm. and this this uh, I'll lead with this because it it fits into the cortisol picture. Is that we all know that thyroid and cortisol, they talk to each other, right? They affect each other. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the ways that, that thyroid affects cortisol, which is sometimes not considered in that whole concept, is that thyroid has a pretty direct relationship on how you metabolize your cortisol. Right. So the literature spells this out fairly well, that if you take a hypocortisol group and a hypercortisol group, the, the low thyroid group is going to have sluggish cortisol clearance and the hyperthyroid group is going to have excessive cortisol clearance. So what this leads to, so hyperthyroid ends up looking the same as obese, right? Because mm -hmm. you ramp up cortisol clearance, the free cortisol goes down because you're getting rid of it so fast, and the metabolites go up. So I've seen a patient, I had a friend of mine, for example, who was misunderstanding her doctor's instructions, 
and she was taking her thyroid medication twice a day instead of once a day. And she had that same look. Well, she's really skinny. I'm like, oh, this is, this is kind of an obesity look, but you're skinny. Totally different picture, right? The reason for her upregulated cortisol clearance was basically self-induced hyperthyroidism that sped up her cortisol clearance. And this, you know, is by no means diagnostic of hyperthyroidism, but for her, it helped get to the bottom of that problem. And as you're dosing thyroid, it's a really good um, just piece of information to know. So the flip side is hypothyroid, where you can have in an extreme case, is just think of the cortisol backing up, right? I make cortisol and I can't get rid of it. So you can actually have, I've seen cases where the free cortisol is elevated. So what do we mm -hmm. think? Oh my goodness, you're making so much cortisol. Here's your serine, or, you know, whatever you go to, to lower cortisol. And then we look at the metabolites and we go, hold on, slow this conversation down. Your metabolites are low. You're making very little cortisol yet. Your circulating free cortisol is high. Why? Ah, your Hashimoto's, et cetera. So you have all these yes. thyroid issues. And in those cases, you know, in, in those particular cases where it's extreme, the, the free cortisol elevation is likely largely in part due, or to some degree due to the fact that you're just not processing that cortisol appropriately. And knowing that as you piece this whole thing together is so much better than just sort of guessing to say, well, hey, you have high cortisol, gee, you must be stressed, or gee, you must, you know, need some, something to calm down your HPA axis. Well, in those cases, that's, you know, it's a, it's a more complex, nuanced, you know, situation, and that's really helpful. Yeah, that's um, great. That's I think PCOS is another one. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really like having all this information for my PCOS patients because, you know, I get to look at the, the progesterone and the estrogen. Well, that's good, and I can do that anywhere, right? I can do that in serum or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also get to look at those androgens, and yes. not just the androgens, but the metabolites, right? So am I making a lot of DHT? Well, let's go look, right? You can see that alpha metabolism so, you know, PCOS is driven mostly by this insulin issue. Well, insulin can also drive alpha metabolism, which means my testosterone gets pushed towards DHT. Right. Which is three times potent. And now that's why I've got hair on my chin as a woman or thinning scalp hair or whatever. Uh, and I can address that, right? Obviously, you're going to address the insulin issue. But, you know, if my sole issue is I'm losing my scalp hair. That can be because of DHT, but it can mm -hmm. also be because of thyroid. And if you rule out the DHT issue, you know, and you're not pushing in that direction, then don't go give them saw palmetto and nettles and all these things that block alpha metabolism. Give that to the patient that actually shows that alpha preference in their metabolism. And that's, that's part of the benefit of just having so much information to wrestle with as you're dealing with these patients is you can see, you know, the progesterone and the estrogen and the androgens, but also the metabolism uh, for those patients. So I think, I think those would be two good examples. That's awesome. So I just want to, I just want to summarize a little bit, just kind of nutshell this. So hypothyroidism, there's going to be a slower metabolism of the cortisol metabolites. And therefore you might look at somebody and see their, uh, you know, just really pushing out tons of cortisol yet. If you also, so you would see that in saliva, but if you've got the advantage of looking at metabolism, you'll actually see no, in fact, they're not metabolizing their cortisol normally. Um, and treating, treating thyroid is going to support that because thyroid will stimulate the metabolism of those of cortisol. 
And then in hyper is the exact opposite. So in hyper, you look at somebody's sal saliva cortisol measurements, they might look flatlined, they might look very low. Um, yet, if you've got the advantage of having the metabolites, you're going to see that they're, in fact, wildly elevated, and there's this uh, extremely rapid uh, metabolism going on. Uh, and then you mentioned PCOS, another really great example, um, and looking at DHT, looking at not just the androgens themselves, but the androgen metabolites to see what's happening uh, and the influence of... Um, of insulin on uh, testosterone production and DHT and so forth. So thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, now, you also, you guys are also able to uh, pack in all of the estrogen metabolites that we know and love. Any, any comments around um, estrogen metabolites, metabolism and looking at the details there? Yeah, I would say... You know, cortisol is the biggest reason I love this test. And then a close second would be the estrogen because, you know, the first practical application of the metabolites is just confirmation, right? Like, I'm a skeptic of every lab work, my own work, whatever. Um, and so when I see an estradiol that's high, my first thought is really, like, is it really high? And so when I have these other right. seven, eight metabolites in the same family of hormones, they help me to confirm the story. Like, okay, yeah, look, you're pumping out lots of estrogens. Okay. Um, but then secondly, there's this just practical application of, the, of this issue, like with the cortisol, of are you just metabolizing it well? The, the main reason people look at the metabolites, uh, especially the phase one metabolites, is this issue with cancer risk. Right. And setting that aside for a minute, um, there's a very practical application of just, say, uh, I had a friend recently, uh, Trisha. Trisha's got estrogen-dominant symptoms, but guess what? Her progesterone is fine, mm -hmm. but her estradiol is high. And I could have seen that in blood, um, but I saw it in the urine, right? But then I can see why. The reason hers was elevated is because her two hydroxyestrogens were low. So she has this sluggish clearance of estrogen, and, and I get to look really smart, right? Because I say, hey, just take a little of this supplement called DIM, which she has no right. idea what it is, um, and it'll make you feel better. Uh, and so she took some, and we retested her, and what do you know? It pushed the estrogens down that 2-hydroxy pathway, which, again, we tend to think about cancer risks. We can talk about that. Just as a practical application, she was able to get rid of those estrogens, her estradiol and estrone and estriol and 16-hydroxy-E1 all came down within range. Her 2-hydroxy estrogens went up, and she felt a lot better, yeah. right? So there's this practical application of just seeing whether you're a man or a woman, like, am I getting rid of my estrogens the way that I'm supposed to? And if not, that's an avenue for me, you know, being able to, to assist. Whereas if everything's high, 2-hydroxy's high, everything's high, you know, DIM or I3C might work a little bit, but, man, i got to see what's driving all this estrogen because there's clearly too much production. So maybe it's inflammation, you know, you know, whatever it might be, I can go, you know, look at that. And now I maybe I'm looking at things like calcium deglucurate or mm -hmm. things that help on other fronts to lower those estrogens. But you get um, a more thorough picture. And then there is the application of, you know, potential risk factors for breast cancer, prostate cancer, and all of those. If I'm making lots of 4-hydroxyestrogens and not making, you know, um, enough 2-hydroxyestrogens, that's something I want to pay attention to. And then it also turns my focus to the methylation, which is another piece of it, right? Yes. So that's, that's part of phase two metabolism, where we take these hydroxys 
and we turn them into methoxies, unless you're like me and you don't, because I have <laughs> genetic defects in my COMT and I suck at methylation. So right. I can see that and I can start to address that and I'm kind of in the middle right now of trying to figure out uh, what actually will improve. So I'm trying SAMe, I'm trying these different things to see right. uh, what it got. But if you've got MTHFR, if you've got COMT, this is a functional test to show whether you're a good methylator or not. And so it just gives you this big, rich picture for the estrogens of not only what world are you in, low, normal, or high, but also, you know, how are you, how are you processing these estrogens? You know, and if that's problematic, then, you know, let's deal with that. That's right. It's great. It's really, it's comprehensive. So as you said earlier, with your, with your friend, which incidentally, since you were able to get, get a, a, a nice full snapshot, you didn't, um, you know, you were able to do some pinpoint intervention. The only thing you needed to do was dim. You didn't have to, like, kitchen sink her. You didn't, you know, add in any progesterone. It was really straightforward. And, you know, you could look at her cortisol and see what, what's going on over there in relation to the sex hormones um, and, and, and then all of her derivatives. So it's handy being an analytical chemist, isn't it? You can just go and test yourself and look at all these things and look at them on your friends. That's pretty neat. Um, yes, I, I know all of my wife's friends more than I probably should in terms of uh, some of those friends. So yeah. <laughs> That's great. Now, you and I were talking, interestingly, uh, this is diverging slightly, but, but you know, we were talking about your COMT mutations and your difficulty with methylation and some of your own trials and tribulations with attempting to support methylation. So if you have the COMT and you throw a bunch of methyl donors at yourself, you get really anxious. And then, you know, maybe you're going to improve your 2-methoxyestrone, but you're, you know, also incredibly anxious and wired and all that stuff because you're not metabolizing your catecholamines very well. And I was, you know, I just think one of the nice, the, 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 what that hits home to me and supporting, oh, and actually the other thing you said that was really important was that, um, it's hard to move uh, to hydroxyestrone over to 2-methoxyestrone. Um, so, so that's not an actively moving uh, pathway that isn't that it, it doesn't necessarily respond to um, very high dose methyl donors, as you said. And and it just prompted me to think about the whole stress um, breast cancer or stress cancer or stress anything connection. And um, if you're not a good uh, if you have methylation lesions, um, your, you know, what, what little COMT function that you have, you know, your, your methyl donors are going to go towards metabolizing your catecholamines way before your estrogens, like on the hierarchy of, of, of what your body's going to do first. It's going to be moving out the catecholamines, the adrenaline. And so I think, yeah, yeah go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I'm not an, an expert so much in that area, but just very practically speaking, that uh, yeah, it seems to be difficult to move the meter when it comes to, like we see a really good connection between the ratio between these metabolites and people who have genetic defects like me, mm-hmm. uh, but when you start intervening, um, it can be uh, difficult to go from bad to good. I mean, usually if you're lucky, you go from bad to decent, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. So yeah, it, it, I think the estrogens are harder to move than the other methylation targets. Right, right, right. Well, I think I definitely think stress reduction is a component of that, but you're, it, it's just really an interesting marker, you know, or, you know, the 2-hydroxy the to the 2-methoxy, and I think it'll be one to, 
you know, just be cool to track over time. And you have a great position where you can, you know, you're speaking to clinicians all over the place working on this. And it'll be interesting to sort of um, observe if there's any interventions you see working better than others. Um, okay, so what are the limitations around Dutch testing? I mean, are there any circumstances under which you would not recommend using it? Um, yeah, there are a few situations where I would definitely go in a different direction. Okay. Um, I think just first and foremost, like it's a, it's a good test for men. Um, it's a great test for women. Uh, so for men, I like it, but if, I, if my sole focus is testosterone, I personally would go to blood. Like I would take a total and free testosterone over a urinary testosterone. Now, when you're talking about the totality of our test, I really like it for men or women, mm -hmm. but as it relates to just testosterone, if I'm trying to monitor a pellet or an, in, uh, an injection, you know, I love all the estrogen stuff we're going to get, the testosterone metabolism, but when I'm hanging my hat on a testosterone value, I would, t I, I would rank blood ahead of the urine, um, but that would be exceptionally more so true if they're of Asian descent, um, mm -hmm. which sounds kind of weird, but there's a, there's a genetic defect in, and when I say defect, it sounds terrible. There's no clinical consequence of this, but essentially testosterone gets turned into a phase two metabolite, testosterone glucuronide, that's what ends up in urine. That's what I measure. Mm -hmm. I don't measure estradiol. I measure estradiol glucuronide, the water-soluble form of it, which is a good reflection of bioavailable hormone, yada, yada, yada. But in it, there is a defect. Uh, my brother-in-law, I'm pretty sure, actually has this, although he's not of Asian descent, um, where your ability to turn testosterone into that water-soluble conjugate gets broken. And so you have normal testosterone, but your urinary testosterone is very, very low. Um, and it, it's over half of people of Asian descent have this. Hmm. So then when they test in urine, they get a low testosterone, and it's not a good idea to go treat them. You need to go get a blood test to make sure that that's actually the case. So that's, that's probably the biggest caveat with urine testing is there, is, there can be phase two issues for testosterone. And again, they're, they're pretty rare in Caucasians, they're a little more common in people of African descent, um, but still fairly rare, and, but they're really common in, in people from, like, Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we do is we know there are, there's a series of three hormones that are affected by this and then two closely related hormones that aren't, like epitestosterone. And so we have an algorithm for basically notifying physicians to say, hey, look, you might want to go get a blood test because there's some uncertainty here. Um, but if I back the decision up and say, I have an Asian man, I really care about his testosterone, I would go right to blood. Um, so that would be one area where urine testing has a limitation um, is with that particular scenario. Um, also, actually, before I move on, does that, did that make sense? Yeah, it actually did. And I think it's pretty cool that you flag the clinician so they'll go to blood. But I would also say, though, that, you know, if you're concerned about low testosterone, looking at the estrogen, um, production and metabolites and looking at cortisol is obviously going to be extremely useful in painting the full picture. So it might be a scenario where you want to look at, at both tests, but yeah, you absolutely made really clear sense. And I understand you're just not making the, you're not, they're not, uh, engaging in glucuronidation as efficiently. And so you're just not right. able to pick exactly. it up in urine. So yeah. Okay. All right. Great. That's a, that's another useful, uh, bis bit of information. Yeah, that would be 
The other thing is uh, if you have a kidney issue, mm -hmm. then right. our test is basically dependent on your creatinine yes. being uh, proper, yes. if you will. And so if you have some significant kidney issue, then it, it can kind of monkey with our test because it'll essentially bloat. If you have too much creatinine in your urine, it'll bloat the values. Or Actually, that would no. decrease the values. If you, yeah. if you don't have enough creatinine in your urine, then it would bloat the values on our test because creatinine is the denominator. Right. And again, we've Correct for hydration, right? And it works really well. It's a robust model. But if you have a if you have a, a kidney issue, um, you either need to look at it a little bit with some caution, or go use a different test. Um, so that would be another one. Uh, we don't test thyroid. We don't test pregnenolone. Like some of those things, I think have to be tested in blood if you want to do them well. Um, but yeah, those would probably be the, the main things I would say, in ter just in terms of limitations. So, and it's important for people to know right. every test has limitations. Well, you I'm know, you, you, there's nothing that is that's going to work in every single situation. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to really get to the position where we beat you to the punch to say, look, here's a situation where you shouldn't use it. Go in a different direction um, so that you have, you know, confidence that when you do use it, um, you're, you know, you're getting good information. Right. Well, I see that you report you know, creatinine for all of the specimens. So obviously if they're out of range, either at either end, if they're too high or too low, you're going to kick it back to the clinician, right, and tell them to do something else? So, yeah, if the, if the creatinine's a little low, it just means your urine's dilute. Um, if, if your creatinine is very, very, very low, then, you know, the, the instructions would ask you to, to monitor your hydration so you're not, like, crazy yeah. hydrated, right? If you drink, like, eight gallons of water, then the relationship by which creatinine corrects for hydration, it falls apart at a certain point. So probably one out of a thousand people that test with us, you know, we say, look, you know, there's a particular problem here. Let's have you recollect um, because you've, you've got to watch your hydration status. And, then, and that's a different issue, um, which, again, is not usually an issue, but every once in a while you see it. That's a different issue than if your creatinine is actually not excreted like it's supposed to be. That would be more of a kidney issue um, and, th and that would compromise, you know, the fact that this wouldn't probably be the best test for somebody who's got a really substantial, you know, kidney issue. I've only seen it once, to be honest with you, where I've actually had a patient recollect and we actually did a creatinine clearance. And I said, look, doctor, like this person is excreting 30% less creatinine than they're supposed to. And so, mm -hmm. you know, in that case, we actually made like a little research report for her to say this is what it would look like if that was appropriate. But in that case, like it's not the best test for you. So, you know, you might want to go do something different if you know that there's a significant, you know, kidney creatinine issue with a patient. Would it, so, you know, we, I mean, all of the other urine tests that use creatinine um, have, you know, similar issues. I mean, we would see this at, um, at the lab with the organic acids when I was at Metametrics. Um, if they had an extremely high creatinine, like if they were a mega, mega bodybuilder and they were, you know, had wild amounts of muscle mass, it might influence the results. Or if they were, you know, sometimes people would want to try to get organic acids on infants and they might have such a, you know, obviously extremely small body habitus and the creatinine would be too low. Is so. Are are you speaking about? I mean, would that come into play in this test at all? I mean, the the, the weight lift. Well, or gets, no. I mean, it gets to a, a little bit of the nerdy side of what we do, but um, I don't like that bias of saying, "Oh, but I'm a bodybuilder," right? So we there there's a really nice paper that a Japanese group put out 
where they tortured these poor people into doing 24-hour urines like over and over again, tons of people, and they actually figured out the regression analysis between your creatinine, your age, your height, your sex, and your weight. So if we have a 130-pound Rayleigh guy and a 250-pound linebacker, like the amount of creatinine that's supposed to be in their urine is different. And the difference between those two introduces bias into every test that uses creatinine to correct for hydration, right? So we've actually used the relationship between age, height, sex, and weight and creatinine, and we correct for that. Oh, my gosh. Wow. um, we we correct so yeah I don't really that whole issue of like with a, a big guy like yeah like it your values in a guy who's got tons of muscle mass how would that work you have extra so your numbers More. would be artificially low I think uh, so because the creatinine is sort of it's not artificial but it's it's higher than it would be in an average guy right so yeah. it's gonna pull those numbers down right um, and oh and then for kids this is a great model but creatinine changes with size of kids. And so we would have to do extensive reference range studying. Uh, so for organic acids, you, you get a direct linear relationship between creatinine and the size of the kid. Like height is actually the best predictor of creatinine. And so um, when I was working on organic acids at, at someplace else, you know, we actually like, came up with a way to correct for that with a regression analysis uh, because otherwise it's pretty challenging. A, a four-year-old kid and a nine-year-old kid uh, may have the same amount of something, hormone, organic acid, whatever, but the creatinine is going to be different and there's going to be bias in that potentially. Right. So th- that would be the last job to correct for that. We have those relationships figured out in urine for kids, but we don't have the reference ranges yet. So we don't, we don't test kids yet. Okay, okay. All right, so that was a really um, geeky... Uh... That's probably more than you thought was coming, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's great. I think that the take-home here is that you guys have corrected for this. And the outrageous outlier, you're going to kick back to the clinician. And um, there may be some people with, with certain uh, a degree of kidney disease for whom this test isn't appropriate for. But, but as you've said, that's rare. And for the most part, you've, you've been able to um, correct for all of these potential issues. I think that's the take-home. Yeah, so for the, the, tra- the trade-off is you have a 24-hour urine, right? I'm dependent on the patient collecting it correctly, and there's, someone did a study once, and they said 40% of people screw it up. I don't know if that's true or not, but even if it's 20%, that's a lot. Then the patient has to measure it right, right? The first laboratory measurement in a 24-hour urine is done by the patient, right? They have to take that graduated urine jug and hopefully they didn't go over and get into two jugs or it's a big mess, but they've got to measure that correctly. If they're off by 15%, like, you're just off, right? So the uncertainty of that is significant, Mm -hmm. and you can overcome it, but it's significant. And the uncertainty for us surrounds creatinine and hydration and whatever, and what I've found in running both tests is that this model is more robust, Mm -hmm. um, and it depends less on the competence of the patient, and I like that trade-off. But there is still like some issues that we have to wrestle through and occasionally they snag you up and you got to recollect or, uh, you know, maybe one out of 10,000 patients would, you know, just didn't actually get successful results because something weird was going on or, or, you know, whatever. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no, I got it. I got it. All right. Well, let's move away from this analytical backstory because I don't know if everybody's going to be that interested in it. And I think that you've made your point. And I appreciate, again, you know, the amount of effort you guys have put in uh, behind the scenes to get it right. Um, 
So, and you guys, so you you designed this to be particularly particularly useful for monitoring HRT. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the, I mean, that's been kind of a, uh, a little project of mine is over the last 10 years is putting together information on, okay, if I move from a transdermal hormone to a vaginal hormone to an oral hormone, sublingual, like every one of these routes of administration, it's a different set of questions as far as which tests work well. Mm -hmm. And so some of them have pretty extreme limitations, and we've tried to address some of those in the way that we've developed our tests. So I'll give you an example, oral progesterone, right? If you take oral progesterone, the kinetics of oral progesterone say that it should be gone from your blood or your saliva in about four, five, six hours, right? So people take it at bedtime, and when do they test? In the morning, right? Like 10 hours later, it's supposed to be gone. Um, in addition to that, all the metabolites you make from the oral progesterone actually cross-react with the test, the assays, and artificially increase the value. So now I have a value that's not that accurate, that's not even supposed to be elevated by the time I test. So blood and saliva work fine for progesterone, but they're a really bad match for oral progesterone. Okay. So we said, okay, well, with the urine testing, we can actually do something a little bit better. Because when you take oral progesterone, it's almost a pro-hormone, right? Progesterone doesn't help you sleep when you take it at night. Allopregnanolone helps you sleep, right. and the progesterone turns into that, right? It's a metabolite. So yeah. we said, okay, progesterone goes down two primary pathways, alpha and beta. Alpha is more active. That's where you get allopregnanolone and that whole family of hormones. Beta is not. So we look at those metabolites, and we can actually help you assess whether patients are pushing down that pathway or not. So we see patients all the time that are on higher doses. Well, how'd they get there? Well, they took 100 milligrams. It didn't really work. And then they took 400 milligrams, and maybe it's too much, and then they're at 200. Fine. And then we see patients who are like, oh, good grief, 100 milligrams knocked me out, right? And so mm -hmm. they scale back to 75 milligrams. And what we see is the patients that it works really effectively for, it's because generally they push down that alpha pathway, mm -hmm. right? So we can help providers assess that by looking at those metabolites. Um, if you don't sleep well and you're on oral progesterone and it's because you push it down the other pathway, then maybe you want to take a little bit more. Right. But if you do push it down that pathway and you're still not sleeping, you maybe should go look at cortisol. Maybe you should go look at melatonin. Like, it just helps you better in that assessment. So for oral progesterone, I feel like we have a better answer. Uh, for patches, for pellets, for injections, I think anything works well. Mm -hmm. um, those are pretty steady states. Everything should get elevated to an appropriate relative amount, and you can use just about anything you want. Vaginal hormones is another one where we came up with a special um, solution. Right, because with vaginal hormones, the up and down in blood is unpredictable. I can show you two women's paths of testosterone taking vaginal testosterone. One of them peaks at eight hours. The other one peaks at two hours and is at baseline at eight hours. So if you test them at eight hours, you don't really know what's gone on, right? Like there's a story there that you, that you can miss. Mm -hmm. um, so if you collect in urine, you're collecting over time, and you say, oh, well, that's better because I'm going to collect over a much longer time period for a urine test. And that's better. However, what's the problem? You just contaminated your sample because the hormone is going into the area from whence the sample comes, right? So you can contaminate the sample with hormone, but we look at that and say, well, hold on. We don't test testosterone, right? We test testosterone glucuronide. We right. test testosterone sulfate. These are conjugates. The free hormone's not supposed to be there. So we set up our method to systematically remove free hormone. 
uh-huh. right? I don't care what your free testosterone is in urine because it's negligible. It's 1%. Right. And if you're on vaginal hormones and now all of a sudden your testosterone is way high and it's all free testosterone, that is, that is the hormone that's there by way of contamination and we remove it. So now you get this, this really nice solution where it's an average over time, which is, I think, beneficial relative to serum or saliva, but it's not contaminated. So we can actually use that as a really robust testing um, situation. So I think it works really well for pretty much every situation except sublingual hormones um, don't really work very well in terms of dosing, monitoring, because you swallow some of it and the other part you don't swallow. I don't know which fraction you swallowed, and the urine is going to go way crazy high from the stuff you swallow, from first-pass metabolism, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm going hormone in my mouth, hormone in my gut, hormone in my bladder, and it's never been in circulation as a free hormone, the stuff that's first-pass, right? It just gets kind of washed through your body. Uh, And the rest of it goes in sublingually, gets into your body, and some of it goes into urine. That's what I want to see. But I see all that other stuff that becomes ambiguous. So sublingual hormones is the one where... Now, you can look at the metabolites, and that's nice, but to say, oh, you need more of a sublingual hormone is really tricky to do um, with urine testing. So, and, then the, and then the last one is this big vortex of a conversation that you could have a whole separate call on, um, which is transdermal hormones, right? And you talk to people do such different things on transdermal hormones because it is confusing, right? You put transdermal hormones on, salivary levels go through the roof. They're really variable from day to day, but they're really high a lot of times. Uh, and the serum and the urine lag way behind, and there's this, all this confusion. I don't want to get into it too much because it is a really separate, confusing conversation, but um, I've done a lot of work on that to try to best figure out, you know, how do we test with transdermal hormones because they're so popular, um, and especially with progesterone where you get this huge dichotomy, mm-hmm. right? The saliva is really high. The urine and the serum lag way behind. And the clinical response seems to be kind of in between, mm-hmm. you know. And so you sit there and go, do I, do I really want to give you hormone until my urine and my serum are at this really elevated level? And, you know, and w- at which point the dose is really high. So that's a tricky one. Um, but for everything else, I think it's a really good catch-all. Uh, and then for any situation, you get the metabolites, which is good, right? If I'm giving estrogen, I want to know how you're processing it. Right. Um, so I think as a, as a general rule, um, we've been very specific about trying to make it as applicable to as many situations as we can. So it's a pretty good catch-all for HRT. But those are, those are tough topics. And we, I have a whole video library on, at DutchTest.com where you can go through a separate video for each route of administration that will walk you through, here's what happens in serum, here's what happens in saliva, here's what happens in urine, and here's what we do. And you can make, I think, better decisions if you're, you know, well-armed with information. Perfect. Okay, perfect. So it seems like in some cases, uh, transdermal or sublingual, we, you might need some serum testing as well or, or watch the videos. No. <laughs> well, honestly, I think, so for sublingual, the serum results move so fast. Yeah. If I give myself the testosterone, it goes up and down in two hours, three hours tops there's really no good time to test. Either you're shooting at a moving target or you've already missed it. So that doesn't work super well. The issue with, I would pick urine over serum for transdermal because while you, you don't tend to see the increase like you do in saliva, which I don't think is, is a better testing option, but it tells you that there's tissue getting a lot of hormone that we may not be seeing all of it. Uh, the serum and the urine tend to tell the same story. The difference is with the urine, you get the downstream metabolites, which adds to the picture a little bit. 
So if testosterone's getting into your tissue, you may see it as testosterone. You may see it as a downstream metabolite in some people, and I think that's I think that's better. Um, but there's it still is a really complex subject yes. in terms of you know do I hang my hat on this number and change my dose until I'm in a certain range, or and I and I think the story really there is lean more heavily on the clinical picture yes. when the labs aren't perfect. Okay, got and the it. The labs are not perfect. They're not perfect for transdermal. They can be useful, but you're going to want to lean more heavily on the clinical picture. You put a woman on a patch, I'm going to give you a solid number, and I think serum will give you a solid number. And you can lean, of course, still lean on the clinical picture, but that lab has a lot of merit, right? Whereas with sublingual and transdermal, you just want to be more careful with the labs that it's not perfect. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So then that's a pretty straightforward take home, I think, Mark. You just really need to lean on the clinical picture, and if you want, and but but it sounds like urine can still inform decision making because you will get to see the metabolites and all of that. Um, but and for those folks who want to do the drill down and get into uh, Mark's library, we will have all of um, Precision Analytical's contact information. In fact, you'll have um, email addresses you can access Mark and and the team there. Uh, all right, so we're 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 heading we're heading on the home stretch here. Um, this has just been a remarkably useful conversation. Lots of pearls um, for us, and I'll try to collect those and 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 list them on the page. Um, anything else you want to add about the test, and including um, how providers can get started using Dutch. Yeah, I mean, if, if people are interested in the t- in the test itself, um, I think it's worth at least kicking the tires to know, uh, you know, for some people this is their go-to hormone test. For some people this is the, you know, only when it's really complex kind of stuff. Um, for some people it's just their adrenal test. Um, if you really want to try it out, um, we try to make it easy for new providers. So, the, like, for example, the Dutch Complete is 250 bucks, right? Uh, so it gives you everything, melatonin, estrogen, metabolites, cortisol, everything. Um, and we offer that to new providers at half price. If you want to prepay, you can get up to five, right? So you can get one test, you can get two, you can get five. For 125 bucks, you get all that. And so that's a great way to get started. We embed in our report and right on the front page, there are a series of video hyperlinks you can watch. If you say, look, I, I understand all this, but I don't get the cortisol piece. There's a video on the cortisol stuff that's just me walking you through the concept. Or, you know, I get that, but I don't get the estrogen metabolism. There's a video right there to help walk you through it. We have a, a on-staff physicians that give a detailed, specific breakdown of your first test just to help you walk through it. So we're really trying to help people bridge the gap um, because there are some concepts here that you're not going to have if you're just doing serum testing or you're just doing saliva testing. Um, so if you go to DutchTest.com and sign up to become a provider, you'll get that offer, like, hey, up to five tests, half price. And that's a good way to just kind of get a look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, we just stock people with kits and, you know, you use them in your practice as you see fit. Insurance coverage is pretty decent on the urine test because our price is low and there are lots of tests, so the charge per analyte ends up being like, you know, 10, 15 bucks. Um, so when we give people insurance receipts, they tend to do really well that way. But, yeah, if you want to just go to the website, DutchTest.com, um, you can get information there, um, and, and we're, we try to make ourselves really available. So even if you have questions on, you know, I don't want to use your test, but I need to, I need to know 
can I use serum testing when I'm taking hormones this way? Like, we want to be a resource for people on those questions because it's really tricky. And, you know, like I said, I'm an inch wide to mile deep, and that's our space, and we want to help <laughs> providers in that space to say, look, the questions you don't have time to dig into, like, that's what we're here for when it comes to reproductive hormones and especially HRT and, and those sorts of topics. Thank you so much. You know, I just, I appreciate, clearly you're, you're, I don't, <laughs> You're a mile deep in this arena. I know you've been working on it, you know, for years. And, and uh, yeah, you've been a great resource for me. And I think, um, I think clinicians will enjoy uh, checking out the, the Dutch test. So, again, Mark, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It was fun. <laughs>